Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. In a career spanning nearly 40 years, Steve Daniel has had a profound impact on what we drink in the UK. First at Oddbins, where he was buying director in its pomp, and since 2010 at Hallgarten Wines, he's always championed new styles and regions, as well as what he calls the underdog. Listen to us chat about what makes a great retailer, his enduring love affair with Greece, his brewing skills, and why fine wine can come from anywhere these days. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yep. Uh, I would ask you where you are, but I know where you are because we live in the same street. So you're about 200 yards away from me. But I can't believe it's taken us so long to make the technology work. Exactly. Sorry about that. A couple of old farts, really, aren't we? That's the problem. One old fart, I think. Yeah. Listen, um, great to be talking to a wine a wine legend, uh, and so that, that's 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 you, not me, by the way, because I can't talk to myself. <laughs> Lots of stuff I want to ask you about, you know, the old days, about what you're up to now, and about the future, really, because I think, um, you know, we had a good chat the other day about where the wine world is going, and and it's, you know, it's it's interesting, I, I think, and and possibly problematic, but. Yeah. I noticed on your bio that you're one of a number of people I've had on this podcast recently originally trained as a chef. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were your parents foodies? No, not at all. I, I was uh, brought up in Harrogate, a working class family, uh, very simple, fairly grey food, to be honest, tasty, but simple. Um, never drank wine at home, wasn't brought up with wine um, and really didn't get into wine or, or food until I went away abroad for the first time i went to greece um and washed up in greece and how old were you when you went to greece uh, late late sort of 19 18 19 um and then tasted you know greek food and uh, smelt the the air and things and thought wow all these smells and flavors and things are all different and alien and when i get back i want to try and sort of replicate these so i i got the sort of food bug first And uh, so I really took it seriously and I used to make dinner parties and everything like that. And then I thought I better do it properly. So I went and trained as a chef, uh, did my 7061 and 7062. And and there my mentor and tutor, a guy called Brian Dennison, said, you know, you're quite bright for a chef because this was back in the 70s, not the glamour (laughs) days of now. And you're very committed. Um, and do you like wine? I said, I have no idea. I've never had any. Um, And he said, well, I do this... um, this course for people he said you not your age group you're 18 19 these are all 55 year old lawyers and doctors and whatever but he said come along I said well I've got no money and he said you don't have to pay we'll sort it out and uh, come along and see if you like wine so that was it and I tasted a wine the Puy Fume Michel Red and I just thought wow wine can smell like this and taste like this so I I kind of got sidetracked by that point and thought well you know, forget about the food bit. I'm I'm into wine. <laughs> so were you still doing the chef course at that point? I, I'd, I'd just about finished it. Yeah, I was still doing it. And then just about qualified as 
at that. And then I thought, no, that's not what I want to do. It looks like too much like hard work. I'd done some placements in, in <laughs> kitchens and whatever, and it was stressful and it was late hours and whatever. I thought, wine, wine, that's rock and roll lifestyle. I'm going to become a wine buyer. I, so you hadn't even went, you had wine when you were in Greece. What were we drinking? Ouzo or something? Ouzo. <laughs> Anything we could afford, really. The cheapest alcohol for the book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what did your parents think when you came back and said, I want to be a chef? Did they enjoy the food? Well, well, the, the strange thing, it wasn't that alien to them. They liked the food I was cooking for them. It wasn't that alien because my, my granddad actually was a chef. He used to work in the big kitchens, in the big hotels in, in Harrogate. Um, so it, to them, it wasn't that alien. They just thought, oh, well, he's taking after his granddad, you know. Um, but the wine thing was a bit more alien. So, well, you know, you don't know anything about wine, as most of my mates said. I said, well, you know nothing about wine. How can you be a wine bearer? I said, well, I'm going to teach myself. <laughs> so when was that then? So the late, late was 70s? in the late 70s. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the same vintage as you pretty much. And, you know, my, my parents didn't really drink wine. I mean, you know, I'm, the, the occasional bottle of Matthias or, you know, Luta Molaski Riesling or Verve du Vernet. I mean, you know, it just wasn't thing thing that, I think that most normal families did, I don't think. Was it in those days? It's true. Yeah, no, they didn't. It was, uh, I was brought up um, by my, well, with the family, but it was more likely to be a, a Mackerson. Yeah, or a, exactly. Or a Tetley's. Uh, a whiskey Mac. That's exactly. what my granny used to drink, a whiskey Crabby. Mac. <laughs> I mean, my parents are from, not from Yorkshire, but the, from the Midlands. And, you know, it was it was whiskey Mac. You know, I mean, yeah. my, my grandparents never drank wine. But yeah. I mean, what about this thing? You studied hotel management, didn't you, at Leeds Polytechnic? Was that after that? Well, yeah, basically, I, I decided that, um, that I'd better have a fallback position in case my master plan of becoming a, a, a wine buyer didn't work. And I thought, well... I may as well go into an industry that I kind of like, you know, I've, I've got a touch for the, for the food bit. And, and I think I might be able to travel and do things if I, in the hotel industry. So I thought I better get a formal qualification just to, to fall back. Yeah. And did you get it? Uh, yeah. 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 No, I did an HND in, in hotel management and was top student, top marks and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. <laughs> managed so you to get qualified that. to run a hotel? Well, I wouldn't say that, but I got I got a piece of paper, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit more about that, you know, that light bulb moment when you had this pre-fume. I mean, you know, what did, did you suddenly think, hey, I'm smelling something here that I've never smelt before? Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of that. Or it was I'm smelling things here that I can smell in, in the outside in the in the world, you know, whether it's a hedgerow or whatever. Yeah. I could, and and I didn't think that wine could taste like that. And and then I suppose a true light bulb moment came at the end of this course. There was like five lots of courses and tastings, and the, and Brian put on a, a blind tasting. And at this point, I was buying anything I could, which wasn't there wasn't a lot I could afford, and there wasn't a lot out there. It was obviously sort of things like Bulgarian varietals at that point. And I'd, I'd bought um, a, a Chilean Cabernet, and basically there was only two in the market at that point. There was. Conchitoro, sorry, my cat has joined me, and uh, Conchitoro and uh, Cusino Macola, I think it was. And I tried one of them before, Cusino Macola, about the, the week before this tasting. I went, wow, that's amazing. It smells black currants. And, yeah. da, da, da. and this blind tasting came along, and I thought, whoa, this smells of black currants and things. It must be Chilean Cabernet, but it's not the one I tried the other day. It must be the other one that's in the market, which was Conchitoro, I think. And so I said, it's Conchitoro Cabernet, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and everyone went oh my god you know he's only done five lessons and he can do that so 
so basically, you said, "Yeah, I think you need to be in the wine trade." So but I, it's, I, but I, it, yeah, it's interesting. It's showing you the the powers of deduction in a way that you knew yeah. there were only two in the marketplace, and yeah. you thought, "Oh," but but also showing that you've got this gift, really, that that, that you could well, spot uh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, I suppose so. That I could I could log it in my head and and yeah. think, well, it's very similar to the one I. You know, I've tried before, but it's not it. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I mean, you got a job as a shop assistant, Martinez Fine Wines in Ilkley, so yeah. not too far from where we. Yeah. Which was great. It was. I mean, it was the halcyon days of of um, Rioja in those days because it was yeah. all the, the amazing seventies vintages coming through, and they were for nothing. And, and Martinez yeah. was a, a Spanish specialist, so I was brought up on seventy three Grand Reservas from La Rioja Alta and things like that, and. Mm. And so I was very lucky. And, and it, being a small operator, I got access and tasted a lot, which was great. Yeah. And then you went to Arthur Rackham, didn't you? Was that down in London? It's down in London because I thought, well, I can't be a wine buyer up here. So mm. I've got to go south, you know, go to London, young man, and, and make your fortune. So yeah. I went to Rackham's um, and they said, yes, we'll take you on as a trainee buyer. But, but in reality, they, they wanted me as a, a relief manager. So I, I did relief management um for a, about six months and realized that i wasn't going to get trained as a buyer there and my wife well, girlfriend at the time lived in muswell hill and she said oh, i've just seen a an advert for um well actually no she was in belsize park she said i've seen a an advert for a trainee buyer no in in obbins they put it in the paper local paper so i went into the into the local shop and said, you know, I want to join you guys at Obbins and I'll do anything to get on the, the track. And the guy said, well, you've just timed it right because we do have a, a vacancy as a trainee buyer. We just got a notice through from head office. Would you like me to put your name forward? You went, all right. And you got uh, the job. Yes, please. <laughs> I mean, very lucky. But I mean, you know, Obbins had started in the 60s, hadn't it? But but, yeah. but, it, but was it starting to become the force that it became in, in, in the 80s and 90s at that point or not? Not really. Funnily enough, I mean, I knew a few people in the trade down here and, and I was looking around to see where I could go and, and forward my career. And they said, when I said, look, I've, I've got an opportunity as a trainee to go for a job as a trainee buyer at Obbins, they all said, don't do it. <laughs> they said they're going to be bust in a year. And I said, really? And they said, oh, no, they're going through all sorts of problems and things like that. You know, you don't want to go there. That would be a, a false start. But I just thought, no, I, I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to go. I give it a go. And, yeah. and it, it wasn't a false start. It was it was the start of something great because, you know, um, good, really intelligent people at head office who had a real feel for, for retail and mm. some amazing people in the, in the stores. I mean, incredibly bright, well-educated yeah wine fanatics who who sort of with phds weren't they a lot of the time absolutely i mean way cleverer than me and and they they run their stores like uh entrepreneurially they they, it was like their store you know so put a bit of management and and now at the head office and and sort of really motivate and and get these guys firing on all cylinders and and that was that was obvious because you know you know i could have been the greatest wine buyer in the world and but if i didn't have the people at the sharp end it would never have worked and was was john ratcliffe there by then who was the md john was there john had just joined from from the stores and he just started the uh the exploration of australia i remember when i first arrived there was several about 20 containers of cheap australian wine on the water um, and one of my first jobs was was to be in the tasting room, QCing them with with the guys, saying, "Are they okay? Are we are we good? Here? <laughs> you know, we haven't made a huge mistake." So um, yeah, so it was it was perfect timing for me because 
Obbins was going places. It had investment. And they were part of Seagram then, so money wasn't an issue, which I think previously it had been. Yeah. So, so you and you and John Ratcliffe kind of changed the culture, didn't you? The, the culture was there, I think, in, in, in certainly the stores. Uh, but what we decided to do was was really go for it. Um, and you know, we saw that both of us were a little bit sort of non-conventional and. And we decided that wine wasn't an elitist thing and we wanted to sort of make it far more uh, for the people, if you like. We were a bit communist in our views. Mm. And uh, we just wanted to kind of demystify it all. Mm. Mm. And, you know, we, we thought this is an, uh, this was a, a time when, it, you know, Blue Nun was still popular, Black Tower, all, all of the Liebs were, were massive and the Hirondelles and Don Cortez's. And, mm. Don Cortez. <laughs> yeah. And it was still all of that kind of stuff, plus the classic drinkers that were drinking their claret and their, mm, their mm. Chablis. So we decided there's got to be something more to that. Um, and, and France and Spain and Italy had sat on their laurels and they had great vineyards and maybe great history, but their technology wasn't great. Um, and, and they were not, you know, it was like, well, my dad did it this way, so I'm going to continue. Yeah, yeah. So we thought that the new world was, was a much better uh, treasure trove in a way because no one had been there really and and they were making reliable affordable wines so we went and you ch- what did you think in sort of australia chile yeah yeah i mean jo- john was australia and, and i was chile i was the first gringo wine buyer in in chile back in 88 yeah i went out there which was quite interesting at that time <laughs> yeah absolutely it was still pinochet years wasn't it it was just after it was a year after yeah. Pinochet, i think and yeah. uh and there was no infrastructure, and most of the wineries, even the big guys that we know today, had basic wineries with the old Rowley b- barrels still yeah. in them, and very little stainless steel around. Mm. Um, but again, the, you could see the quality of the fruit in the vineyard, and mm. and there was there was an opportunity there. So we went for that big time as well. I mean, John was always one for saying, "Don't do it half-heartedly. If you're going to do something, you've got to make mm. a statement. So mm. don't go and buy one shilling wine, or don't go go buy, buy fifty. Yeah, when you can buy 50 exactly yeah. <laughs> what what were the highlights of your time there i mean winning lots of awards i mean you know because yeah. you progressed very quickly didn't you from you know yeah. do, you know trainee buyer to buyer to senior buyer to you yeah. know um yeah. you know no, really uh, directing what well, you're buying director at the yeah, end yeah buying a marketing yeah. director at yeah. the end of it yeah um yeah it was it was really quick very rapid um i was very lucky um i mean luck has got a lot to do with it serendipity if you like or whatever yeah. i mean Having a good basic talent and, and and a good vehicle to to drive, if you like, and and, yeah. and I, I had I had a good vehicle and yeah. and a bit of talent. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you know you were perceived as a new world specialist. I don't mean you. I mean Obbins. <laughs> but you sold a shed load of champagne, and you know, there were yeah. good burgundies. You even did on Primor Bordeaux, didn't you? And and and, t- and took took the cash out of it in a sense. You took the risk out of it, didn't you? Yeah. No. We, we, I mean, yeah, we. Uh, we'd look anywhere that gave good wine, I think. And so we had amazing burgundies. Um, you know, we had all the top, top guys, you know, Le Flaves and Soze and Ramonet and all those guys. So we did that. Bordeaux, as you say, we did on Primeur on the shelf. We actually bought the wines, put the million pounds down yeah. and, and then sold them to our customers when they were in at retail prices. We yeah. took all the risk out and buy the bottle. Yeah. So yeah. we wanted to do things differently. Um, and we weren't, we did a lot in the new world but we certainly weren't new world specialists we were big into the south of france in those days yeah. even believed in that you know we're down into the roussillon and 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 the longadoc um yeah. so 
we'd go wherever there was was good wine, basically. Yeah. And at good value. We're going to talk about value yeah. later. But and there was this Greece um, thread again in your life. That Greece was the first place you went overseas. Yeah. What made you want to become a chef? And you became fascinated by the wines, didn't you? I mean, you listed Greek wines pretty early on. When would you have started listing those? In the nineties. In the nineties, twenty-five years ago. Twenty-five years I've been pushing Greece now. And they finally got there. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't give up. I, you know, I think it's worth banging that drum. You may as well keep banging it. And you got a house on Santorini, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I bought that in two thousand. Um, it was one of those again serendipitous moments. Um, I was wanting a, I wanted a house back from those days when I first went to Greece as a penniless beach bum, um, and I saw this plot that was a, an old wrecked um, canava, an old winery in Pyrgos. Um, and it was it was wrecked. It was a total wrecked cave uh, winery, and but it had an amazing view. So I just decided, yeah, I'll buy it. And did it up. My wife said, you're crazy. My mate said, I'm crazy, but I just bought it and did it up. I said, yeah, I know, but look at that view. And and, and it's a winery. It's got to be, you know, it's meant to happen. And, and probably the <laughs> smartest investment you ever made, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not that good at making smart investments, but that was one of them, yeah. <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, you left Old Bins in 2003, a year after the French company Castello bought it, before that it was owned by Seagram, obviously. Yeah. I mean, had the culture changed a bit with the French coming in? Yeah, I mean, I'd got to a stage in life where I'd, I'd, I was used to autonomy, and, and that's yeah. we, what we gave everybody in, in, in the business, a, a, you know, a sense of it, it was on them, but they, they could do what they liked, you know, as long as they came up with the results. And and I, I realised that it wasn't going to be like that with a new owner. Yeah. It was it was going to be a job, a nine-to-five, if you like. Yeah. Um, and there were, it wouldn't be... I wouldn't be allowed to be as creative as I had been previously, so I, I thought it's time for me to to move on. So I did. So you'd have had you had to answer to what to to other French buyers or what? Yeah. There was a, a, a sort of top by senior buyer, wasn't there at Castel or something? Yeah, yeah, no, you would have to put everything through the board, and 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 that was primarily uh, French and Castel. Yeah. So, so did, did they change the wines as well that Obbins listed? They were wanting to bring in more French uh, because it's, it was an area that they were more comfortable with in a way. Um, yeah. And they had a strategy and it didn't correspond with what I thought the strategy for the business should be. So, yeah, yeah I thought, well, so you left. There's no point hanging around and, yeah, and exactly. arguing. You may as well move. So I did. Yeah. And you set up your own business, which was Novum, but you also did some consultancy, didn't you, at that point? Yeah. Yeah. When, when I left, I, um, I worked with a few of the big boys like Conchitoro, mm. um, particularly on the, um, on the Argentinian uh, project, which was Trivento. Um, yeah. And they wanted me to go over and see, see if there was a potential there. And because they were, they were not getting the right wines out of the winery. And so I went there and, and I could, I tasted the wines and they had great wines in the winery. They were just not putting it together correctly for the market. Mm. So it was easy. It was one of those little disconnects that they had between mm. the market and, and, and the winemaking mm. or not even the winemaking. It's just how they presented the final blends. Mm. I mean, the winemaker was very talented, knew exactly what they were doing and great raw material, but just put together wrongly. It's, it's you know, yeah. it's like being a chef and yeah. and somebody wants a, a roast Yorkshire dinner or whatever, and you, you give them, with the same ingredients, you give them some, you know, Cocovano, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> was... and, you know, you probably could have made a career just doing that, couldn't you? A very lucrative one. Uh, possibly, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. But it, it coincided with me becoming a dad, you know, and my wife and I were bringing up a child. So I thought, well... 
I could, but it's a risky business because you you know you freelance, you know that, and mm. you you don't have uh, you don't know where your next pound is coming from in some sometimes. Mm. So I thought, well, I, I better get a proper job as well, basically. And so that was Novum, really. Was but the, you had a backer, didn't you? Do you have a backer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a, a great guy called Amit Ben Haim, uh, Israeli entrepreneur, who rang me up and said, "Look, I saw what you did at Obins, and I want to set up a company that does the same sort of thing, which is you know taking undiscovered or you know not very well known wine regions or new winemakers in a region and and bringing them to the market." I said, "Great, you're talking my language. Let's do it." So, so we did, and we were very successful and, and grew rapidly. But then when you grow rapidly, you need more finance and da-da-da-da-da. And then, the, then came the crash around the end of 2008, 2009. So Amit said, look, I think you'd be better off as a business and the guys, you know, if you moved on to somebody, that, another home that can look after you and, and keep you going. So yeah. we ended up with, um, with Holgarten, which was great. So Holgarten took over the business effectively. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's where you've been ever since, really, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, a I good mean, home. You've got a, a degree of autonomy there again, haven't you? Absolutely, in a way that Novum came into the system because, um, you know, Holgarten wanted a bit of, you know, judging up, if you like. Always been a very steady, reliable uh, importer with, with a good, fairly traditional portfolio. So they just wanted a little bit more of that sort of cutting edge wines that, you know, maybe that I'm known for. Mm. So, I mean, yeah. Holgarten is, is quite on-trade, restaurant-focused, isn't it? Yeah. I just wonder, when you're buying wines, do you think, oh, this is an on-trade wine and this is a, an off-trade one, in other words, a retail wine, or is a good wine work in either scenario? Yeah, last the last one. Uh, a good wine should work in, in either scenario, to be honest. Uh, I think if you're buying, I mean, yeah, you, you, the wines w- will work. I mean, it depends on the kind of ty- type of wines you like, I suppose. If you go for massively fruit-forward wines all the time, they're not going to be appealing to a, a sommelier. But I don't buy that kind of wine. No. I tend to look for mineral, intriguing, yeah. interesting wines. So mm-hmm. I naturally sort of maybe go, even though I'm a retailer in the background, I go for that kind of wine that won't be out of place in a restaurant they'll, they'll work in both both sets yeah. both places really yeah yeah but yeah we are we are primarily restaurant and a bit of independent but then i think that's where all of the action is to be honest mm. uh, I, I think you know sommeliers are wine enthusiasts they want their customers to have good wines and independent uh wine merchants a lot of them are ex-obbins guys <laughs> anyway <laughs> and, and and they still they want the interesting intriguing wines yeah I mean, what, what, I'm interested by what you think makes a good buyer. You've been a very successful one. Cause it's not just about being a good taster, is it? You know, I just wonder how important things like negotiating skills, getting on with people, commercial acumen, maybe speaking to them in their own language, all of those yeah. things. I mean, do they make somebody a better buyer, do you think? I, I think I think understanding what the, the, the producer wants to achieve, I think, is one thing. And, and what, you, what you're looking for, I mean... You know, my job is to go and find the best example of whatever it is, in in my opinion, and then get a good good price for it. So yeah, negotiation comes into it, but it's it's not a matter of you know being a hard ass 
you know, bang the table mm. beast that just wants to to knock everything down for the sake of it. It's it's getting it at the right price for the market and then mm. being able to explain that to the producer. And if they understand that, they're more likely to say, yeah, no, I, I can see where you're coming from. You don't just want a 40% discount for the fun of it mm. because you've been told to. Yeah. It's You see where it fits and you can, you know, you explain to them, this is your peer group. This is where they are. This is where you need to be. So I, I think it needs some people skills. Um, in terms of uh, language, I wish I, I spoke a foreign language. I don't. Um, I, I would have been probably a much better buyer if I did. But if you spoke Greek, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it, it hasn't hold, held me back that much. But I think it's a massive advantage mm, to, to, be, yeah. to be able to speak a language, and, and it's one of my biggest regrets. Well, it's interesting that you also talk about the second most important thing about a, about buying in a way, the role is, is finding a home for it. It's not just buying it. Anybody can do that. It's thinking about, about selling it. I mean, that's important yeah. too, isn't it? Absolutely. That's exactly what we were taught at Obbins or we taught ourselves is there's no point in us buying something unless we can communicate it primarily to our salespeople or to the consumer to yeah. create a demand. And very often we were buying wines that had no demand at all. <laughs> We had to and create, create the demand. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. and that's something that I strongly believe in now. So, you know, whenever I go and buy something, I, you know, I'm speaking to our salespeople. I'm speaking to people like yourselves, you know, so opinion formers and, yeah. you know, the journalists. Yeah. And so that there's not just me talking about it, that, that you make some noise. Yeah. You know, I keep thinking, I say basically, you've got to say something five times before anyone takes any notice at all. <laughs> do, you so, think, do you think that's true? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it, otherwise, people it sort of goes over people's heads, you know, and I'm, I'm the same, you know, I'm just a basic consumer. So if somebody tells me want something once, I'll think, yeah, okay, but if it's if I keep getting it with the same message, I'll get <laughs> it. But you think, okay, there's something there. I want to ask you, I mean, you know, looking at the wine trade now, really, which countries and regions do you think offer the best value for money and, and the worst? Oh, right. Okay. Um, well, the worst, uh, without slugging too many people off, I think, if you if you buy big names, you know if you go for the big, well-established names, you're not going to get great value. I mean, there's there's no wine that, on this planet that's worth a thousand pounds or whatever. No. No. Um, so, so there's areas you know that produce those kind of wines that maybe are not great value, but there are people prepared to pay that. So mm. you know, there's the Burgundies of this world and and maybe some of the top Bordeaux's. You know, they they've gone beyond what they're worth. Whereas mm. there there are still bargains in Burgundy and Bordeaux. So it's mm. you can't sort of generalized it's just that some places are a little bit more expensive and a lot of the trophy wines um, i think you know just massively overpriced and, yeah so uh, avoid famous names in a way it, i've always tried to i've always tried to find an alternative and and, and don't pay you know th thousands of times the worth of that that bottle just for a five percent incremental increase in quality mm. in some cases and maybe not in others yeah. um so yeah, I always look for the underdog. You know, maybe I see myself as a bit of an underdog in the trade. So I was always wanting to give the underdog a, a bit of a hand up. So in terms of current values now, you know, Greece is never cheap. You know, it's not going to be supermarket wine, but it's bang for buck is brilliant at the moment. I think making really intriguing, interesting wines. In you know, I think there's there's a prime example. I think the south of France. You know, Languedoc and the Roussillon. Roussillon, you know, terribly underrated mm. for, for many years. Uh, but there's some fabulous producers in the Roussillon and, again, offers real value. So I think if you look at lesser-known areas from anywhere, you know, if you look at Italy, you know, everyone now knows about Barolo and Chianti mm. and whatever. But if you go into the Marche and, mm. and 
Abruzzo and in the south, go to the south. Amazing values. Mm. Um, so I, I don't think there's any one place to look. I think it's just go off the beaten track a little bit. Yeah. It's almost the mindset that, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny, I often look at people's Instagram feeds and, and they're, they're trophy wine drinkers, they're label wine drinkers. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to name names. but yeah. And I look at it and I just think, it must be so boring to be you because all you do is drink wines that are famous that someone yeah. else has told you to drink. And I exactly. think, where is, the, where is the interest or the excitement in that? I mean, maybe, maybe it's, you know, I'm saying that because I can't afford to drink those wines. So I've got to find interest elsewhere. Well, exactly that. No, that, I mean, that's what, that's what keeps me going. It, it's finding the new things. Uh, you know, I, you know I, I don't buy very expensive trophy wines. I don't think I've ever bought one in my life. You know, I just don't do it um, because they're there. They don't need my help in a way. They don't yeah. need anyone's help. They, yeah. They've got it sorted. But I think the guys that have put in the time and the blood and the sweat and the tears and, and the money into it in the lesser known areas need more of everyone's help. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think looking back that the, those glory days of, of of bins, you know, in the eighties and nineties, were a golden age, or are we living in a golden age now, or are they just different ages? Yeah, I think different ages. I mean, they were great because um, you know people were just getting into wine in a way, and and a lot of the new people into wine didn't have the baggage, mm. I suppose, of the past, so they were open to Australia or Chile or the south of France or wherever. Um, there was there was more options for the average consumer as well. I think I think you know even then the supermarkets were making a massive effort to up their their wine offering and, and had some really interesting wines. And we had more competition on the high street at Obbins. You know we had uh, wine rack and people that had good offerings of wine. You know yeah. Zinfandrecht and things on the shelf. You know, yeah. and I think a lot of that dumbed when Obbins went. Everybody kind of dumbed. I mean, there's always been proper wine merchants and they've been there constantly even when Obbins were there and afterwards um, and I think you know there are great little specialists who've sprung up mm. um, but the offering in on the high street is has been dumbed down a little bit yeah but it's interesting looking just looking back at all the number the number of just high street chains they've disappeared you know victoria yeah. wine and they had a had a premium offering uh, yeah. and the thresher wine rack group and 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 unwins and davisons and fullers yeah. I and mean, all those people had had very good shops with good yeah. buyers and you know I, I i think you're right that in terms of what's available on the high street it's not great really anymore no. but what's replaced it is some really good independence you know a, a proliferation of independence really absolutely and and in a way i mean they've got more raw material to work with than yeah. we had because yeah. I think the quality of wine generally has increased massively. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, how do you think the next 20 years are going to develop? And do you think new regions will emerge? Will old ones disappear? And particularly bearing in mind things like, like climate change. I mean, we've discussed yeah. this between us a couple of times and thought, are there places that are famous still just about that in 20 years might not be regarded in the same way? Yeah, well, I think so. I think things are changing already. And, and, and the consumer is, is not stupid. The one thing that a lot of people do is underestimate the customer and and they should never do it because they, they are flexible and they will adapt to change and they do and you just look back for the 20 30 years i've been in the industry that there's been massive changes in wine drinking habits mm. so they will continue so if a region doesn't give people what they want and or at the price that they can afford mm. they will switch you mm. know i mean so uh, you know, Bordeaux will always have the elite wines. There. I'm not getting away from that. But maybe entry level Bordeaux, you know, sort of like claret might not be a thing anymore. People mm. might not say, oh, I want a decent glass of red wine. I'm going to buy mm. a claret. They, they won't be saying that, you know, because they'll think, well, I'll, I'll go to Abruzzo or I'll, yeah. 
I'll go to Chile or I'll go to Argentina if I want that. I'm, I'm not going to go there. So I don't think those those areas will disappear, but they'll become less important to the UK consumer, I think. Mm. And what about climate change? Are you noticing that effect already in some of the regions yeah. you're buying? I mean, I, I think it, I don't think it has a uniform effect. I think mm. there's certain areas that are producing wines now, which they couldn't have done maybe 10, 20 years ago, um, UK being one of them, England. Yeah. Um, which is a bit of climate change, but also then, you know, it's now a professional industry. Um, but then there's places like, you know, Chablis, which has always made, you know, sort of world-class wine, but th that style has changed. I've seen a stylistic change and mm. I've seen more stylistic change in, in the Loire, in Sancerre and Puy Fume. If you look at a, a vintage like 2020, it is like that that would never have happened mm. in 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 Sancerre. it's very big and it's rich mm. and it's heavy and it's not necessarily what i look for it's atypical mm. um so it's having an effect and i think it's in certain areas it has a bigger effect and and you look at what's happening in germany you know when when i started german wine was Milch mm. and everything had residual sugar but now the, the amount of trocken wines and mm. the amount of decent red wines it's yeah. it, it's it's changing um, and yes, you can reliably uh, make dry white wines, basically, without yeah. having to have residual sugar to balance the acidity, yeah? Absolutely. So it's, you know, in terms of certain areas, it's it's helped in a way, and other areas, it's definitely not helped. And could you see a move to places like southern Patagonia and maybe, you know, yeah. more development in Tasmania, maybe, maybe you know, in, in, yeah. in the Arctic Circle even, you know, more, more Scandinavian wines? Yeah, no, I, I think what you've got to do in, when you do have global warming, you, you either move up, so altitude, Argentina's already got pretty pretty high vineyards, but you, you go up or you go to the coast, and, and if you've got a cool mass of water, even better, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, areas that, you know, are not that well known. I mean, even South Africa, I know it's it's something very close to your heart. I think mm. South Africa is, is criminally underrepresented in, in mm. the UK. And, mm. and to me... It doesn't seem to be as as affected by climate change as, as other places, and mm. they they may not have massive altitude, but they're mm. they're moving closer to that really cold ocean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, do you think we need a new definition of fine wine? I was you know I was looking at the menu the other day that that, that Prince Charles, King Charles rather now yeah. um, was serving to civil Ramaphosa, and I thought, oh God, it's champagne, it's Bordeaux, it's Burgundy, and and Sauterne at the end, and you just think. It's so boring, you know. Yeah. I, mean, like, I, I just think all that we've lived through and, and our different ways have had an effect on, you know, what people drink. Um, yeah. It's as if it hasn't had any impact on the fine wine scene. Is that? Are we, am I being unfair? No, I think I think as you, I think you said earlier on that there's a lot of people that buy trophy wines and, and they, they buy the um, the reassurance of saying, well, you know, I'm putting this on for a dinner party, and nobody can argue with it because look, there's the label, there's yeah. there's the badge. Mm. It's not me. If you don't like it, it's your fault because mm. this is a world class wine. It's a fine yeah. wine, but I think it has to change. I mean, mm. and and if people want to be normal people, want to, not maybe King Charles, but not normal people want to drink fine wine, they've got to reinterpret fine wine mm. and look elsewhere. I mean, there's nobody can tell me that. You know, some of you know the the great Chardonnays coming out of South Africa now are not fine wines. You know, yeah. people like Richard Kershaw is making yeah. extremely great Chardonnays. Yeah. So, so and they're world class. They're fine yeah. wines. And, and the same, same thing with the Sirticos from 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 Santorini. Santorini. 
Exactly. And, you know, there's so many examples of fine wines in lesser known areas. You know, the the Roussillon is another one. You know, they've been making fine wines in the Roussillon for a long time, but they're still off the radar. You know, I mean, Gobi and Sula and those guys, pioneers. And now there's more and more people. Yeah. Uh, So fine wine can come from anywhere, I think, don't you? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. No, as as long as it's 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 good wine and and people are tasting it with with an open mind, I think eventually people will get it. You know, yeah. well, for instance, when when you and I started in the trade, Barolo was not revered as it is now. No. Um, it's it's gone through a, a massive yeah. transformation in terms of quality and and appreciation. And now no one would say Barolo wasn't a fine no. wine. No, exactly. It's true, isn't it? I, just, I mean, I just wondered whether you've ever wanted to own a winery yourself. I know, I know you've you've made beer uh, and you've done a lot of blending, and you're a very good blender because you've got a great palate, um, and you love getting your hands dirty and creating things by your own admission. Have you ever thought, you know, I really fancy a winery? Uh, well, yeah, I've, I've often thought about it. Yeah, but my wife kind of likes living in the UK, which is fine. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not going to make any. I'm not going to take the really hard path and try and do it in the uk mm. um but you know i'd say never never say never I'm, i i would love to make a little bit of wine one day and it would probably be in santorini mm. why not We've got a certico on our back door and uh well and you and you're and you're living in an old winery right exactly so you know maybe i've got to do it at some point but you're right i mean i've i've made beer i've we had a little brewery in london for a few years we still make beer i'm, I'm one of the partners in a, in a brewery on santorini so mm that's that kind of keeps my creative juices going um but yeah and i'm getting to a certain age now though i don't know whether i, I can take that challenge you know i couldn't take a challenge of, of trying to make a big winery or anything like that because it is so much yeah. investment and, and stress yeah and stress exactly and i don't need yeah. it to be honest <laughs> leave it I mean, to the young kids I wondered how you get away from wine. I was intrigued to say that you don't have a cellar at home and you don't actually drink that much. So, yeah. I mean, how how do you spend your time if you're not drinking wine? I mean, you, you want to get away from wine. I know I see you in the gym down the road yeah. from time to time. Um, how, how else do you get away from it? I, I, I don't get away from wine because I love it, to be honest. I love wine I, I, because it, it's given me my lifestyle um, and, it, and it is part of me. I mean, I, I never switch off. Wine and, and, and me are at one you know we don't i don't log on and log off yeah um but I, i'm not obsessed i don't have a cellar because i don't believe in drinking the same wine again and again and again mm. um there's so many wines out there i want to try as many as possible mm. um and i do drink don't worry about that <laughs> but um <laughs> but maybe not not to excess but I, I try to keep it in moderation but you know some days it's a little bit more than others as mm. as you know in the industry but Generally speaking, you know, I think you've got to have a healthy respect for wine yeah. and drinking it. Otherwise, you don't have a long career, I don't think. No, I, and I think you're right about having a healthy respect for alcohol in a way yeah. and for the yeah. for the, for the the bad things about it as well as the good things. Exactly. But, yeah, so uh, switching off, no, I'll, uh, I, I don't really. I go to the gym, as you say. I think it's really important to keep fit mentally and physically. Mm. Um, I've been trying to play the guitar for about 40 years and still fail miserably. So <laughs> occasionally I'll sit down and have a twang and annoy the, the neighbours and my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, I mean, and you know, it all began with you as a chef with that visit to Greece and thinking, hey, I'm interested in flavour. Do you still yeah. like cooking? 
Uh, yeah, not as much as I used to. I, I seem to have lost a, a bit of time somewhere along the line. You know, that I, I used to have a bit more time and and I'd think, right, I'll do that now. I'll go and do that. I'll go and make a really nice dish for tonight. And also at home, it's difficult. My, I, I don't eat meat. My wife doesn't eat fish. So I'd have to cook twice. And when my son was at home and he wasn't at uni, I'd have to cook three different meals. And I just thought, you know what? I'll just go to Marks and Spencer's and get a ready meal. <laughs> one for you, one for me, and one for me. <laughs> like a good idea. I love it. Listen, Steve, um, amazing career you've had in wine. And I think everybody who drinks wine in the UK should thank you for all the things you've championed, You know, all the things you've done, an amazing job bringing to our palates and to our attention so thank you from a wine consumer as well as a wine lover and a wine journalist i think that you know what you've done for the uk has been, has been truly amazing so thank you thank you so much and it's, it's, been a it's, been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you and i'll see you soon in the gym or outside of the street absolutely okay, okay my friend all the best to you bye cheers now okay bye steve really is a legend and we should all be grateful for his incisive palate and sense of adventure my next guest on Cork Talk after the Christmas and New Year break will be Santiago Achaval from Matavini in Argentina. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.